Friday was Earth Day, an annual invitation to celebrate this beautiful planet on which we find ourselves and to recommit to working together for climate justice, for environmental protections. And it's not a coincidence that the first Earth Day was held in 1970, just 15 months after the first color photo was taken of our whole planet. From our ordinary terrestrial perspective, we're accustomed to seeing the sunrise, right? That's, that's what we're used to. But this photo was taken from a lunar orbit. And above the horizon of the moon's surface, we humans caught our first glimpse of Earthrise. If you, don't, if you can't picture in your head the photo I'm talking about, Google that later, Earthrise. It's really a, a stunning image. And that December 1968 photograph has been described as the most influential environmental photograph ever taken. The perspective of seeing the, the small blue marble of our planet just tiny there, like a Christmas ornament floating in the inky blackness of space. It has the potential to shift our consciousness out of egocentrism, out of tribalism. That image alone has the potential to give us a deeper sense that we are earthlings. All of us, we're earthlings. It can open us to experiencing how deeply we are connected to one another in all sentient life on this planet. And although we now know in retrospect how powerful a photograph of the Earth can be, there really wasn't a widespread awareness of that. If you go back and look at NASA's plans for the Apollo 8 mission, they were hyper-focused on the moon. Taking photographs of the Earth was rated as, quote, the lowest priority. But when astronauts got, got to space, they found that they were, quote, immediately overcome by the thought that here... We came all this way to the moon, and the most significant thing we're seeing is our home planet, the Earth. The cosmologist Carl Sagan later wrote about it this way in his book, Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of Humans' Future in Space. He said our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusions that we have some privileged position, they're challenged by this pale point of light. So we had this Earthrise image in mind. Our planet, he said, is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Some of you will know that, um, that old New Yorker cartoon uh, that has the planet Earth with like human features, and it has Saturn as the doctor, and it has one of those old school little rings over Saturn's like little light rings, and Saturn is telling Earth, I'm sorry, you have humans, <laughs> right? And, and we are sort of multiplying on this planet like a cancer, we could extend this metaphor, right? So uh, we need to sort of check ourselves and find out how to be in a more sustainable, appropriate uh, relationship. This distant image of our tiny world, Sagan concluded, underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've got. We'll sing about that later with Blue Boat Home.
So on this Earth Day weekend, I want to invite us just to spend a little bit of time reflecting on how we earthlings might equip ourselves to better be in this for the long haul instead of, as we've talked about on previous Earth Day sermons, instead of a sixth extinction, right? How do we, how do we stay in this? How might we better work together in coalition across our differences to act for ecological and climate justice, both for ourselves and for future generations? To begin, I, I feel like I need to at least briefly address the recently released six IPCC report, which I think some of you have probably read about as well. That's the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, the report brings together the latest research of 270 top scientists across 67 countries. Uh, if we had to summarize it in one sentence, here's how the UN Secretary General said. They take this whole uh, giant IPCC report. He said, it is an atlas of human suffering. It's that climate refugee piece that uh, Catherine was talking about. And it is a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we humans have already increased global temperatures an average of 1.1 degrees Celsius. That's about 2 degrees Fahrenheit since we have not gotten on board Celsius in the metric system here in, in the U.S. And we've done that through a combination of burning coal, oil, gas, and cutting down a bunch of trees. You know, that, that's how we've gotten there. The consensus of expert climate scientists is that an increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's the threshold um, past which we get this sort of catastrophic climate uh, disasters increases significantly is 1.5 degrees. But achieving that goal would require nations to all but eliminate all usage of fossil fuels by 2050. That's just not that long from now, and most are far off track. The world is currently on pace to, to warm somewhere between 2 and 3 degrees Celsius uh, by the end of this century. How might we think and act differently, then, to co-create a more ecologically sustainable future? In search of some answers, I've read a few different books recently. I want to highlight three for you. All are quite short and accessible if you want to explore them further for yourself. The first is The Good Ancestor, How to Think Long-Term in a Short-Term World. We have a very short-term oriented world these days. It's by the philosopher Roman Krisnarek. And I love this idea of expanding our notion of ancestry to include not only the generations who came before us, but also the generations to come for whom we are the ancestors, right? We are the ancestors of those to come. There are so many ways in which we who are alive today are lifted up on the shoulders of giants who came before. Our lives are so much better, so much easier because of the, the caregivers, the inventors, the uh, activists. You know, we could keep going on. These legions who made this a better world for us to inherit in the broadest sense, ancestors, in the broadest sense of the world. As the saying goes, we all the time, we're drinking from wells that we did not dig. We sit under trees we did not plant. We profit from the sacrifice of people that we don't even know. Their names are often lost to history. There is no way to pay all that back, but we can pay it forward to future generations. And as we explored last week on Easter, the loss of a kind of otherworldly fixation on heaven and hell and the next world, that doesn't have to be bad news. Instead, our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors were at the forefront of showing how life-giving it can be to focus on loving the hell out of this world, right? The American pragmatist philosopher Richard Rorty wrote that the willingness to endure suffering for the sake of future reward, that's what I was taught to do, right, growing up as a uh, conservative Christian, right? That you, it's fire insurance, right? You, you do good so that you, you know, 
don't burn, <laughs> right? So willingness to endure suffering for the sake of future reward. He said it's actually transferable from individual rewards to social ones and from one's hope to have paradise for oneself in the next world, we can transfer it to having a more paradise here on earth for one's grandchildren. That same kind of motivation to sort of save myself individually really can be transferred to working socially and for future generations. Importantly, Richard Rorty's grandfather was Walter Rauschenbusch. Some of you will know that name. Uh, He's the one that really helped found and make famous the social gospel movement. And the social gospel movement in the early 20th century said that Christianity, the gospel, is not about individuals. It's about social justice and living the way that Jesus lived. Uh, And so there's no way for Rorty to pay back his profound intellectual debts to his grandfather, who died more than a decade before he was born. But he could pay it forward by building on his grandfather's path-breaking work, and he did. Relatedly, have any of you ever done the sort of quick math around what is sometimes called ancestral mathematics? The exponential growth rate is its kind of shocking. Uh, consider that biologically, for any of us to be here, we have to have two parents, right? Of course. Uh, four grandparents. Yep, check on that. Eight great-grandparents. And that, that's mostly the kind of horizon with which most of us think, unless you're super into genealogy. But we have 16 great-great-grandparents. We have 32 great-great-grandparents grandparents. If we go to the sixth generation, 64. If we go to the seventh generation back, because you sometimes hear seventh generation thinking, right, even into the seventh generation, you're at 128 great, great, greats. Uh, If you go to the eighth generation, 512, 124, 248, 496. For any of us to be here, just going back 12 generations, 8,192 people needed to have sex, right? (laughs) So, you know, thank you. You know, right? But in all seriousness, just just think for a moment. How many struggles do all those folks represent just going back 12 generations? How many battles? How many difficulties? How much sadness? How much joy? How many love stories? How many heartbreaks? How many expressions of hope for the future did your ancestors have to undergo for any of us, to be here right now in this present moment. Since we're still in a pandemic, let me share one poignant example of this kind of dynamic that I'm talking about, of what does it look like to pay it forward in a way that's really meaningful and really motivating. In 1955, Jonas Salk led a team of scientists in creating the polio vaccine. And there's, there's some folks still alive who just re- remember how incredibly scary that, that time was of, of polio. And Salk chose not to patent his breakthrough. Instead, he said, what kept me going? It took him a decade. It was a decade of painstaking research to get that vaccine. That what helped him continue was his desire to, quote, just be of some help to humankind. That's why he did it. He later said that a primary question he asked himself was this one we've been wrestling with. He would ask himself regularly, am I being a good ancestor? Are we being good ancestors? As we try to avoid that 1.5 degrees Celsius limit, we need more people, more humans, more earthlings like Jonas Salk. But the vast majority of world leaders are failing on climate change. As the 19-year-old, currently 19-year-old activist Greta Thunberg said when she addressed the UN, how dare you, she began, how dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. 
And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. She wants to be clear about that too, right? She's like, you know, people are suffering. People are dying. Young people are starting to understand your betrayal. The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, she said, I say we will never forgive you. Change is coming, though, whether you like it or not. And I think she both means that as generational leadership. And climate change is coming, whether we like it or not. If we, you know, it's just, are we going to keep putting, pumping carbon into the atmosphere or not? And although we can begin by being the change we want to see in the world, right? That's good. We should do that. We also need to be clear that individual actions are never going to scale to what is, is needed to take on this crisis. We need to change our systems our structures, our institutions. You might say we desperately need a green new deal, as we've talked about before. And Krasnarek lists six factors that tend to keep us overdosing on short-term decision-making and six antidotes that can help incline us toward more courageous long-term thinking. I want to go through them briefly with you. He talks about needing to become more conscious of the tyranny of the clock, sort of just constantly being in each kind of 24-hour cycle instead of cultivating what he calls deep-time humility. Uh, you know, or even being aware, as we explored in our New Year's sermon, of 4,000 weeks. Some of you remember that, that if you live to be 80 years old, you will have lived 4,000 weeks. Just 4,000 weeks. That's all most of us get. So just coming to understand that we, are, we humans are just, we're just a blink in, in the cosmic perspective. Moving from digital distraction, constantly letting our attention be hijacked by technology to a legacy mindset, realizing that this, this thing, this little notification doesn't matter. What matters is this longer-term project of this legacy that I want to live on after me and pay it forward. Moving from um, political presentism, so a myopic focus on how do, I get the, you know, how do I win the next election, and it's just always about the next election, to what he calls intergenerational justice. That's that sort of focusing on your grandchildren, focusing on the seventh generation. Speculative capitalism, moving from this kind of just boom and bust and trying to predict that to cathedral thinking. You know, in the medieval age, it would often take multiple lifetimes to build these grand cathedrals. So we need these projects that we're, are really going to, you know, thinking about what world do we want to build at 2100, you know, 2200, really investing that way. Moving from networked uncertainty, you know, the rise of global risk and con contagion, like we've seen with this coronavirus pandemic, to a more holistic forecasting that can envisions multiple pathways forward for civilizations. And finally, moving from perpetual progress. It's what our 19th century Unitarian ancestors, kind of before World War I and World War II, kind of dashed everyone's utopian hopes. They used to say, the progress of mankind onward and upward forever, right? It was like the never-ending industrial revolution. We've come to see we need a more transcendent goal that's just about bigger than any of us. It's about this kind of um, having planetary thinking, right? Globalized thinking, uh, part, being part of something bigger than ourselves. If you want the full details, again, I, rec uh, I recommend uh, Krasnarek's book, The Good Ancestors. But for our purposes, I want to just briefly say more about e each, of, each of those six things. The first, deep-time humility. What does it mean to really kind of develop a cosmic consciousness instead of, like, just being embedded in our own narcissism? 
Uh, we've, we've looked at deep, different analogies for deep time before, so I'm going to give you a super brief one that's also an embodied one. So imagine that the entire 13.8 billion year old universe story is from the tip of your nose to your extended hand, if you just hold your hand out here from the, to the tip of your finger. If that were the case in this metaphor, not even clipping your fingernails, just taking a nail file and just over your middle finger, all of human history is gone. You know, that, that's how little we've you know, been here in this 13.8 billion year lifespan. The universe is about so much more than us human beings. If we don't change our course, we really can't, we're not just so special that we can't destroy ourselves. Like, we need to get right with that. Uh, to give you just one example, China is making some interesting commitments along these lines. They have a 35-year plan for creating more national parks in China. They also are doing a better job than we are in investing in long-term seed banks to preserve the, the biodiversity of, of plants, which are endangered. Um, second, a legacy mindset. An essential question here is, how will people in the future remember us? How do you want to be remembered? As Jonas Salk experienced with not patenting his polio vaccine, it can really be immensely motivating. That profit is not the only thing that motivates people. It really can be the legacy that you want to leave behind that will continue to impact and pay dividends. Third, intergenerational justice. Now, Groucho Marx was pretty funny when he asked, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? You know? I get that. I, I get that perspective. But what we very much need more deeply is the indigenous wisdom of the Apache Nation that invites us to consider we do not inherit the land from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. We don't inherit the land from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. This is another point where I think it's helpful to hear um, from Greta Thunberg. In the year 2078, she said, I will celebrate my 75th birthday, if I'm fortunate enough to live that long. She said, if I have children, then maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask about all of you. She was again speaking to the UN. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything, why there was still time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future before their very eyes. She's basically saying, do you love your children? Behavior is believable. You know, you're not behaving like it. Even more pointedly, she told those gathered at the World Economic Forum in Davos, our house is on fire. I don't want your hope. I want your panic. And I want you to act. You know, it makes me think that, that one of the things we could seriously consider doing to really empower future generations in a way that before climate change I hadn't really taken seriously is lowering the voting age. You know, very seriously, at least to 16, if not lower. Fourth, cathedral thinking. As in the medieval um, cathedral, so grand that, again, their construction took multiple generations of workers, this also connects to the sort of transcendent goal of, again, just feeling like I'm, I'm a part of working for something that is just bigger than me, bigger than my individual needs. As Wendell Berry wrote in his prophetic poem that's very much worth reading in whole, if you haven't read it recently, is titled Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. I'll read you just a piece of it. He said, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus 
that will build under the trees every thousand years. That's the sort of long-term thinking we need. And finally, holistic forecasting. We need to account for multiple factors in planning the future, not just short-term profit as the bottom line. I'm not saying that, that money isn't a motivation. Like, keep money in there. You, we need what is sometimes called the triple bottom line. Profit's still there, but it's not the only factor. You know, also plan it. Also people. People, planet, profit, a triple bottom line. Do you know about B corporations? If, if you don't, um, Google it later. Uh, in contrast to many of our largest for-profit corporations, which are single-mindedly focused on maximizing shareholder value, B Corps are annually certified that you have to be at this certain, you have to get an 80 or above rating on the scale of social and environmental performance. So not only are you getting profit, but are you caring about people and are you caring about the planet? I honestly, truly don't understand, I mean, I do understand, because um, I understand capitalism, but I really don't understand why are not all corporations required to be B corporations? Like, I just, we need systemic changes like that to just mandate it. As I move toward my conclusion, I want to share um, briefly just about two other books that may interest you, depending on your current status of your relationship to climate justice. First, if you're feeling burned out, you may appreciate Thich Nhat Hanh's um, book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. Han was a proponent of engaged Buddhism. He taught that meditation was not merely about waking up individually, as important as that is, but living out an awakened consciousness in the world, living out of wisdom, living out of compassion for the benefit of all sentient beings. And related to the Buddhist teachings of the Middle Way, there are times when he would tell his students, even knowing all the things there were to engage in the world, he would sometimes say, don't just do something, sit there. Right, And part of that's meaning, really, don't just do something. Don't just be acting for the sake of acting. Because if, you if you're not really centered and grounded and strategic, you can actually end up undermining what you're trying to accomplish. So sometimes we need to slow down, recenter, recalibrate. Other times, however, one of his closest students reports that there were days when the action, whatever social justice they were seeking as engaged Buddhists, he would say there was times that, that Han would tell us with a gentle smile and a glint in his eye, there's no need to eat lunch. The human body can survive several days without food. Just keep on working, right? Keep on engaging for justice. And there were yet other days, though, when seeing us working so hard we had forgotten to eat that he would go quietly to the kitchen himself and prepare us a hot meal. So where are you in that mix this Earth Day? Is it time for you to slow down and just do some contemplating and recharging? Or is it time for you to skip a few lunches and take more action? What is the next right action for you to take at the intersection of wisdom and compassion? Can you hear the voices of generations to come? What are they asking of you? Joanna Macy has a um, facilitation, a guided meditation she does, where she invites you to imagine seven generations into the future and just, ask, and then just drop that question into your consciousness. What are they asking of me? And just allow yourself to really ask with curiosity and potentially be surprised. Or what is the earth, what is the ancient mother asking of you? Along those lines, the final volume I'll mention is the shortest and by far the most radical of the books that I read in preparation for this Earth Day. It is titled, provocatively, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It's by the activist Andreas Malm. It's a provocative meditation wrestling with whether the urgency of climate change calls us to engage in radical civil disobedience. 
He's at most exploring the potential implications of destroying property. In the work of climate justice, he takes pain to be clear that he is against harming humans or animals. That being said, he challenges us to consider that many nonviolent protests today are simply what he calls little more than ritualized wishful thinking. You're just getting out there and saying some words and going home. He's like, you're not. We got to turn up the volume, is what he's saying, if we really want to disrupt business as usual, because it's, it's not working, right? Like, what, what we're doing isn't working. And the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So he's, he's really wrestling with that in his book. Now, to be clear, I don't have any plans to blow up the pipelines. If you're listening, FBI, like, I'm not. <laughs> but Mom's book has made me think about what it may take to be the ancestors that future generations desperately need. We're not getting a new heaven. We're not getting a new earth. This is our paradise planet, and we're currently squandering it. So as we prepare to sing our hymn of response, as we sing about Blue Boat Home, I want to invite you to imagine that, that earthrise image in your mind as we sing. And as we sing, just be open to what might come to you. How are you feeling called in your heart, by future generations, by ancient Mother Earth? How are you calling to work on behalf of our blue boat home. Let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together. I'm going to share with you uh, three more quick things that are just on, on my heart and mind and just, I think, maybe important to be said. Uh, the first is, I, I think if Thich Nhat Hanh could say one other thing to us if he were still here about, which he would probably say he still is, separate discussion, um, that, uh, about Zen and the art of saving the planet, I think he would emphasize the importance of Sangha. So Sangha is the, you know, the, a Buddhist congregation, a Buddhist community. And, and, it, and that relates to if you're feeling overwhelmed by all this climate justice stuff or whatever justice work you're doing, uh, as you've heard me say before, the most important thing you can do if you're feeling overwhelmed as one person is to stop being one person. Find your Sangha. Find your group of activists. Find your support system, right, so that you can do this. We're stronger together. That's the first thing. Uh, the second is, uh, if, you're, if you're having, this can be used both if you're having conflict or something really unpleasant in your life and or to kind of do this seventh generation thinking of, I sometimes remember this, I'll, just, I'll see my hand out the corner of my eye and remind us of this. If you've ever heard of the five Fs, and that's to ask yourself, will this matter in five minutes? Will this matter in five weeks? Will this matter in five months, five years, or five decades? It's just a way of giving yourself perspective, either of this thing that's really bothering me, this kind of, you know, is this going to matter in five minutes, weeks, months, years, decades? And just kind of put that in perspective. Or conversely, if you're thinking about doing something for the, you're spending a lot of time doing something, is this even going to matter in five minutes? Is it even going to matter in five years? Maybe it will. And like that can sort of help you gauge. So the five Fs, I think, can be really helpful. Uh, the final thing is that many of you are probably familiar with the, the famous marshmallow experiment that was done in the mid-20th century where kids were challenged. Uh, okay, if you don't, I'm going to leave the room, and if you don't eat this marshmallow, by the, and by the time I come back, I'll give you a second marshmallow. So it was a test of delayed gratification. And so I sometimes do this visual image in my mind of, of holding a marshmallow in one hand and holding an acorn in the other. You know, and are we kind of in marshmallow consciousness 
Are we in acorn consciousness? Where it's that tiny acorn, but we're doing something that one day is going to grow into an oak tree, right? And the final thing I'll say related to that, that marshmallow piece that is often not highlighted, it's often like, those kids, they have no discipline, and they're eating, their mar- you know, eating the marshmallow. It turns out there's an extremely high correlation between the kids that couldn't delay gratification uh, about eating the marshmallow and whether they had a history of, like, food scarcity in their life or of, like, you know, so it's like they're kind of like, I'm going to eat that marshmallow and, and or, like, a general mistrust of authority figures because they were like, I don't, tr- I don't believe you. Like, I don't believe when you come back that you're actually, so I'm just, I'm going to get my marshmallow. And then I'll know I at least got one marshmallow. So that this, all this justice stuff is related, right? We've got to create the conditions in which people have a stable floor of support to be able to do this long-term justice. It's all, it's all related. So as we prepare to go into the rest of today and into the next week, may you continue your journey with love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice. Make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.